Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Jesse. And you're watching In Depth on Now You Know. We're brought to you by abetterrouteplanner.com. They just passed 13 million trips planned, and there's a new app for Android and Apple making it even easier to use a better route planner for your next trip. And sponsored by our friends at the solar-powered hotels in Schaumburg, Illinois, the Fairfield Inn and Suites by Marriott, and the Town Place Suite Hotel right next door. They're both connected, and they're both solar-powered. And we're brought to you by Bior, or Build Your Own Robot Kit. It is a great introduction to robotics for uh, all you kids out there. And head over to ecoware.us, where you're going to find new designs every week. Uh, I'm wearing a new one. I'm yeah, old one, but a good one. Is the world really boring? <laughs> You could see the boring machine uh, cutter right there. That's, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're carbon neutral and a tree is planted for every order. So help support the show at ecoware.us. So on this episode of In-Depth, we're going to be going kind of off the beaten path here. We're going to be talking about how back of the napkin math is more important than calculus. Now, yeah. I can hear in the distance mathematicians screaming uh, that calculus is important. And... It's, it is super important. It's an important Yeah, so hear us out on the whole math. argument before mm -hmm. you start writing in the comments uh, because, yeah, this is a whole thought process mm -hmm. here. So children are taught math in schools, right? It starts with basic arithmetic, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And there's a reason that we teach those skills first, right? They are the building blocks for other kinds of math. If you don't know right. how to multiply, there's no way you can do uh, calculus, long division, any of that kind of stuff. Right. But I think what gets overlooked is that it's not just a foundational piece uh, to move children onto more advanced types of math. Right. It is its own usable math type. Very important thing, which we, yeah, we usually gloss over to get further on in math. But here's the part where we don't, I think, stay there long enough and get kids to understand that math should be used for real world math problems. Right. So, you know, we're all used to those math problems that are written problems like, you know, Johnny has two apples and Sally has three apples, blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking about real world. And I think when you see kids who um, start using math for things that when they don't even know they're using it, that's when math begins to be powerful. So what do I mean by that? So if a kid is into baseball, mm -hmm. let's say, and uh, they can, you know, a kid who's into baseball and is into all the stats can easily figure out, you know, how this pitcher is going to do versus this batter because they look up the stats and they don't even realize it, but they're using math. Right. And I feel like the curriculum, for whatever reason, st uh, started, I don't even know when it started. It must have been like, you know, the 1880s or something with, you know, Johnny has two apples. Back in the 1880s, Johnny has two apples. Okay, I'm I'm with you. Today, two apples. Kids are like, apple what? <laughs> you know, wh what kind of apple product is this? Right. You know, there there there's a little bit more uh, stuff to be working on, and by not really addressing the the types of problems that are they're going to be running into, both as children and as adults, um, we're just kind of you know treating foundational math as this just. Pfft, Whatever. Yeah, yeah you learned on. it. Right. And once in a while, you're going to need to calculate a tip. But aside from that, don't worry about it too much. Whereas that's really not true. Let's use a real world example here. Um, back in the early 2000s, Elon sat down to have lunch with J.B. Straubel in a L.A. restaurant. And on the back of a napkin, they planned out what is actually unfolding today with Tesla. 
And I kid you not, they actually sat there, started talking about, you know, electric cars and, hey, so uh, electric cars, if everyone was going to have one, how many batteries would that be? And they started jotting down numbers and they started taking out their cell phones, looking things up. Oh, okay. So you need that, blah, blah, blah. So that means blah, blah, blah. And before you knew it, they figured out, well, we'd need to be making like 35 gigawatt hours of batteries. That would have to be a gigafactory. How big would that factory be? All of this was planned out basically on the back of their napkins. And from that started the company. Now, so do you see how powerful that is? Quick math and answers you can get from Google, and you have practically more power than anyone up to this point in history. Right. I, I want that to sink in for just a second, because you might be thinking, well, that's just bombastic statement. That can't be true. But think about this. Let's go back to World War II. Generals planning out battles. If those generals had had the kind of power that you have in your pocket and a napkin... And a pen. <laughs> they would have probably changed the outcome of World War II, whichever generals had that power. Right. Because what they were trying to do were make accurate plans about what was going to unfold in the next week or day. And if they had known things like the weather and, uh, you know, let's Google map in on this little beachhead and see what it looks like from the perspective of the defender and from the perspective of the attacker. You know, attacker. And it's not like they didn't have this information. They did. But they would have to send reconnaissance planes on, on practically suicide missions to get right. these pictures. Or, yeah, they would have to have SAS troopers, you know, c- climb up onto the beach to get pictures and, and, and sand sediment, you know. Right. Uh, all sorts of different you, stuff. You would have to have rooms full of analysts and, and lieutenant colonels and so forth figuring this stuff out. The and, amount of resources that were dumped into this one thing, which it would be D-Day, was so great that you can probably not even imagine how many people were there. And now today, I'm not saying you could plan it down to the nth degree, which they did, but I'm just saying it is much, much easier. So whenever you're trying to make any kind of assumption, Google, you can just Google a number, be like, okay, well then, uh, how many wind turbines are there? Okay. Okay. And how much do they cost? Okay. Okay, great. And then uh, we just multiply that up and then we divide it by this number. And now we have an answer to something. A very accurate answer because before Google, before you were able to look up and know practically any little tidbit of knowledge, you just have to guess. Right. You just have to say, well, I think... There are this many of this, and I think that this would happen, and I think that there it costs this much. And so based on your assumptions, that is what you'd end up with. And so back of the napkin math was not that useful back then. Exactly. Because you didn't have any useful numbers. Your assumptions were going to be widely off. Right. Now, that's not to say that uh, napkin math can't be wildly incorrect. Sure. It absolutely can. So if you're if you're saying like, but Zach and Jesse, why are you saying that, you know, back of the napkin math is this transformative math? If if you're wrong on one thing, you could be off by factors of 10. And that's absolutely true. But by learning how to do critical thinking, by doing back of the napkin math, it just takes practice like any other skill. You can learn when something doesn't sound right. You're like, hmm, hey, you know, 18 trillion, that doesn't sound right. right. And then you can go back and check through your assumptions and be like, oh, we forgot that every this is a quarterly number. Okay, so multiply that by four, divide that by four, whatever you're trying to accomplish. And then that's going to get you answers. So back of the napkin math to me means fast innovation. 
uh, when you sit there with someone else and you start figuring some numbers out quickly on the back of a, a napkin, then an hour later you can share that with someone and you can start the ball rolling. This versus the way most American corporations do innovation today, right? If you look at GM and Ford, they are not going to do back of the napkin math. They are going to uh, commission studies, studies and focus right, right. groups, and I'll put you on a subcommittee <laughs> and uh, report back in six months. Right. And by the time you come back with your, your thing, things have changed. Because let's keep in mind that weeks and months now are actually making the difference in the product cycle of most tech products because things evolve so fast. By the time Jesse comes back from his subcommittee in six months with his answer – the tech has moved on. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why back in the napkin math is so important. And, and one of the reasons why we think that it should be taught a little bit better. Uh, I think it's, well, <laughs> first of all, we should realize that it should be taught at all. Mm -hmm. This is critical thinking that we're talking about. Um, but instead, schools right now, they teach math. And they may teach research, right? You, you go to a, a class where it's like, okay, kids, there's a research paper due in two weeks. And right. I want you, research is great. But they hardly ever put math and research together into a quick format. What I would argue is that most kids, when you tell them to do a two or three week research project, they're like, ah, uh, right. right. But what if you said to those students, okay, in 30 minutes, let's come up with a solution to the global warming crisis. Right. Go, right? You would be using math and research very quickly on the back of a napkin. Nothing wrong with that because, like you said, you have to go find the answers to things. You have to work collaboratively with other people and you have to come up with some answers. And so it's not just about businesses. It's not just about being like good at business because you're good at doing some back of the napkin math. Obviously, more work has to take place after the back of the napkin math. But another thing it can do is make you a more informed citizen. So for example, we just got this message from one of our patrons the other day, and he shared with us that Microsoft was committed to being carbon neutral by 2030. And that sounds great. A 2030 commitment is what technically should be being done, that every everyone should, we have to be carbon neutral by 2030. Right, and then you asked a very important question. You said, hmm, Microsoft, they're a big company. Why is it gonna take them till 2030? Couldn't they do it sooner? So then I did some back of the napkin math. So first thing I do, get on Google. I know that this doesn't take place on the back of my napkin, but everyone has a smartphone these days. It doesn't take that long. How much profit did Microsoft make last year? $41 billion. $41 billion. Billion with a B, $41 billion. Okay, great. How much CO2 do they produce annually? That's in the report that they gave us they produce roughly 15 million tons of CO2 annually, which luckily also includes everything else that relates to their company from the manufacture of the things that they make to the transportation of things, even down to, you know, people booting up their laptops and powering their computers, how much CO2 gets generated. They did a great job with coming up with that number. Okay, 15 million tons of CO2 annually. Now we go back to Google. Okay, what is 15 tons of CO2 look like. Very quickly, I went on to a government website. I was able to find out that that's roughly equivalent to 3,238 wind turbines. Okay, how much do wind turbines cost? Google it. Answer, roughly $3 million each, which gets us to the grand total of $9.7 billion. So now we look at the $9.7 billion, roughly, right? It's a rough number. And then we look back at Microsoft's $41 billion a year in profit. That's profit. So that's not paying for their, you know, people in the factories producing the computers. It's not paying for the development of new uh, operating systems. It's not paying for the servers. It's not paying for lunch. No, that's profit. Yeah, so they could take 23% of their profit 
and spend it on wind turbines and basically within probably a year create all the wind turbines that they need to make their company completely carbon neutral. Uh, another way to look at it would be that with their profits, they would be able to plant 41 billion trees. And that would make a huge dent, not just in their own carbon footprint, but in the global carbon footprint of the world. We need something around 2.2 trillion trees to really make a difference in climate change. And 41 billion would be a small percentage of that number, but it would make a huge difference. They want to completely negate all the carbon that they've ever created by 2050. They didn't share a plan on how they were going to do that exactly. But again, we're talking about 10 and 30 years down the road. Right. These timescales for a company that makes so much money, is it's really piddly. So let's look at this another way. Let's say Microsoft wants to be carbon neutral by the year 2030, which they do. Okay, so we take the $9.7 billion in just say wind turbines, for example, and you divide that by 10 to get, you know, in 10 years, that's 2.3% of their profits for the next 10 years. Ignoring the fact that the cost to install a wind turbine is dropping like a stone, you end up with something that's pretty pathetic. Right, and I did some back of the napkin math after you told me this, and I looked up their dividend, and I saw that they're paying $2.04 a share per year to their shareholders. They have 7.7 .7 billion shares outstanding, so that's about $15 billion in dividends that they're paying out every year to their shareholders. So I went back to Jesse and I'm like, here's the number I found, what could they do with that $15 billion? And he's like, oh, okay, with that 15 billion, they could get to carbon neutral and then actually carbon negative this year. So basically they could write a letter to their shareholders and say, hey everybody, this year we're gonna stop paying a dividend for just one year, we'll start up again next year, but guess what? We'll be carbon negative. Right. I'll bet their shareholders, for the most part, would be like, cool, that's a great thing for a company to do. Right. And we're picking on Microsoft right now. I'm, I don't mean to, but it's one of the things that they've recently come out and said that they wanted to accomplish. And to most people, they will simply take them at their face value and say, that's, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. I don't know how to carbon neutral anything. So to me, that sounds like you're doing some kind of magic that I don't have access to. When in reality, you do a little bit of back of the napkin math and you realize that it's, it's nothing. Right. The other problem for me is that when we just take them at their word, we go, oh, wow. So for the next 10 years, I'm going to buy Microsoft products and think they're doing awesome. When in fact, they could be doing a lot more, a lot quicker. Right. which would probably make their customers a lot more loyal to them, but they don't. And then what would happen, let's say, 10 years from now when they announce, you know what, we can't meet our target. It's not going to be 2030 anymore. It'll be 2040. Right. So that's what we're talking about. The cool thing about the back of the napkin math, you can easily share your results and your assumptions with other people. Now, this is kind of down and dirty science. And, and I would argue it's potentially more powerful science than has been possible up until this point in history because you're using the best research in the world. Now, right. let me explain that because I think a lot of people out there are like, this is not science. Okay, back in let's say the 1400s, if I wanted to do an experiment, let's say like Mendel's experiment on uh, you know peas and how heredity affects the outcome of this plant, I would have to plant a lot of plants in controlled environments over many generations, take meticulous notes, and come up with results that would probably take me decades. Because that's, no, that's one, what happened. no one had ever done that before. Right. And, and that is science. Yeah. 
Today, though, I can take all of the findings of all of the scientists and all the data that's out there up until this point, some of the most amazing research in the world. Including Mendel. Including Mendel's. <laughs> and I can base my assumptions and my calculations off of that research. Right. Now, I'm not saying that this is the way science should be done, you know. In, At the highest level. Right. This is, though, an amazing tool because now I can make a back-of-the-napkin calculation very quickly and then share it with Jesse and get his thoughts on it. Because I can look at his assumptions and I could say, your cost per wind turbine is far too high or your cost for solar is way too high. Here is another source that if we follow by this source means that we will get another number, which means that the ending number is completely different. It's by being able to share both your assumptions and your results, you are – I mean it's it's the same as, as uh, putting out a scientific study where you, you have assumptions and you have all of your test conditions and then your results. It's, it's a, a much uh, simplified version of that. And I think that if people felt that they had more access to do that instead of uh, relying entirely on being told it, if they could just do some back-of-the-napkin math to verify assumptions – hunts even you know scientific papers that they read themselves um we do that all the time you know we're, we're constantly looking and being like does this number make sense because if this and this and this are assumed in this paper that would mean that you'd end up with this right but maybe they're completely forgetting to mention this number which is extraordinarily important and there therefore you can have your own informed opinion about something and never before have we had such a platform to share our ideas so before in science uh, you had to get published, which could take years, right? You would do your research, which took years. Then it took you years to get published. And then once it was published, there were years where other scientists retested your experiments. And finally, maybe your your ideas became theories. Now, with back in the napkin math, we can publish it in about an hour. I can then have people interacting with me in about an hour from around the world, which could then ignite further ideas solutions, policies, etc. That's not to say that we don't value the scientific work that's being done around the world constantly. It's extraordinarily important and it's what makes back of the napkin math possible because if NASA didn't launch any satellites and we didn't have any data about our atmosphere, we would be in a much different position than we would be in the this universe where they did. But we actually have access to it today because the wondrous wonderfulness and terribleness of the internet allows us to know these answers practically instantly. I mean, Twitter and Facebook are fantastic, viable platforms to start these conversations. And I would point to Elon's Twitter account, for instance. The other day, he's talking about SpaceX and he does some back of the napkin math on Twitter where he starts talking about how many starships he's going to be launching to Mars. And by the time of his little uh, tweet fest, he gets to, we'll be launching about a thousand starships at a time In to Mars. In 10 years, right. And like that's back of the napkin math. Is right. it going to be exactly a thousand? No, no, he's just giving an idea so that we can all now share in that idea. Whereas if you put out a 500-page study... <laughs> We, no one would read it, first right. of all, and no one would understand the concept. But this back-of-the-napkin math allowed us all to share in it. Because one of the problems, the, the question that he had gotten, regarded the, the fact that we only have a, a launch window between Earth and Mars every 23 months. So how are you going to build something on Mars? And so the answer is throughput. If right. you launch a 1,000 rockets to Mars with, with people on them – that completely changes the game. Instead of sending one rocket every 23 months, it just doesn't seem possible. When you're, but when you're sending a fleet, oh, that makes so much more sense. Back of the napkin math. It gets your brain going, oh, I understand the concept. And I would argue that SpaceX itself is only here because of this. 
Elon knew just a little bit about rockets when he thought about starting this company. Mm -hmm. He knew quite a bit about physics, and he knew a lot about business, and he did some first principles calculations about rockets pretty much on backs of napkins um, to come up with some ideas. And some of his first ideas were about, well, I think what I'm figuring out here is you're going to have to reuse the rocket somehow. And so then how would I reuse the rocket? Let me do some more math. I'm not saying that it's all on the back of a napkin. It's going to get pr- pretty complicated pretty fast when you're talking about you know suicide burns of, of rockets landing on uh, drone ships in the middle of the ocean. But as soon as you find out that that's possible physically, then the question becomes, how can I accomplish this in real life? Because if you would ask some of the biggest launch manufacturers in the world, like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, they would have told you it was impossible. No, you can't use reuse a rocket like that. Right. Maybe you could put parachutes on it and it would land in the ocean. You go pick it up. But you definitely can't have it land back on the launch pad, and especially not the entire first stage. It's just too big. By doing a little, <laughs> a lot of, of math, he was able to prove that it was possible and then move forward from that assumption. And he had to keep changing his assumptions as he went. He wasn't locked into things because he was able to quickly iterate using back-of-the-napkin math. When something wasn't working out, he sat down with a bunch of engineers. They figured out what was going on. And that's when they did the calculus, right? right? I mean, there is calculus that falls in when you're talking about rocket science. Right. But they were able to quickly change directions if they needed to. And then what happened? Six years later, they were doing something that no private company had done before. They launched a liquid fuel rocket into space. Now, I think that this is a skill. We need to treat this back of the napkin math as a skill and we need to teach it and we need to practice it. It's essentially critical thinking, which we are not teaching in school. In school, you're given a problem and you are given all of the numbers, right? You are not told to go find all the numbers and you generally are not given more numbers than you need. And you're already given the problem to solve, right? You don't, there's no like, okay, what do you want to accomplish? Um, And a lot of people go their whole lives never really understanding why they were in school for so long, why they were learning all this math when all they had to do was, you know, maybe their taxes, uh, maybe calculate a tip once in a while, unless they, you know, just had a calculator do it for them. Why, why did they need to learn any of this? This gets the critical thinking muscle in your head to start being used and start getting stronger. And if we are critically thinking, then we are going to get our political system back. Because When politicians promise us something that sounds too good to be true, most people just believe it. That's why they vote for them. That's why politicians continue to do it, because it works. But if we start thinking critically, then we will quickly analyze what we're told and we'll say, no, that's too good to be true. Let me just check that. Check it, realize they're lying to us, and we'll start to elect leaders who critically think to solve problems. And if we're both, if on both sides of the aisle, we're good at back of the napkin math, we can meet in the middle with our little napkins and we can say, uh, this policy would cost X amount of money. And that's why I don't like it. It costs too much money. And, and you can go, okay, I see that you've calculated that out either that doesn't cost as much money because you're not looking at X, or it's going to be saving so much money because you're not looking at the results of what that thing is going to do. So take a look at my back of the napkin math. Instead of what we see today, which is you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're stupid. Oh yeah? Well, you must be some kind of blah, 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 blah. Because that's all we have, because we don't ha- we don't get to meet in the middle with our napkins, right. with our little like, okay, well, I think that this would work and here's how it would happen. And I think that a lot of people also get scared of really big numbers. As soon as the number sounds too big, oh, that costs millions of dollars? Oh my, well then forget it. Right. Because to a lot of people, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money. 
And a billion dollars sounds like an incomprehensible amount of money. And a trillion dollars is an incomprehensible amount of money, but it is stuff that is going on in the world today. And if we don't take a step back and realize all of this stuff can be represented with simple figures on a piece of paper, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The beauty of back of the napkin math is that you won't be afraid to iterate. You won't be afraid to imagine things because the beauty is you're doing such quick, rough math. Everything is so simple and so little time is put into it that you're not afraid to throw out things that you spent a little bit of time on. So for instance, if I wrote a 20 page research paper on something and then Jesse came up to me and said, I don't think that's right. Based I, on one assumption. Right, I would fight him on it. I'd be like, well, I spent a lot of time. I spent weeks on this, dude. Right. I'm not gonna re go down that path. Right. But if I just spent five minutes figuring something out and he goes, that's wrong. I'm gonna go, oh, okay, scratch, 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 start again. This does what human brains are good at, which is it stimulates imagination. You start writing down some numbers, you start collaborating with someone, and before you know it, you're imagining possible solutions. You're putting together two or more ideas from completely different directions, industries, topics, backgrounds, areas of expertise, and that is when the magic happens. Take a look at Lennon-McCartney. What did they produce? Amazing music because they didn't come at it from the same direction. Look at Jobs and Wozniak. They came at it from completely two different directions and they came up with Apple. Or look at Elon, Franz, and JB. They came at it from three different directions and what did they come up with? Right. Amazing iterations and imagination. Right. Once you know something is possible, like you're pretty sure that it would pretty much work, then you can go and achieve it. And that's what we're trying to talk about in this in-depth. We hope you enjoyed it. Go do some, go, go into wolframealpha.com. If you've never been to Wolfram Alpha, it is the most amazing resource. You can ask it just about anything. And you can have it do math for you. You can be like, take the population of Estonia, divide it by uh, the number of drivers in Estonia and spit out, you know, you can get all kinds of numbers right. and then be like, okay, so if we wanted to have electric cars in Estonia, then it would cost X number of dollars. Take, you know, take the GDP of Estonia, divide it by, you can do all of that right on there. And I, I encourage you to do uh, all sorts of different thought experiments, both big and small. And focus on your local government, focus on your, uh, on your national government. Take a look at what, what's going on. Try and figure out the math so that way you understand how things work. Yeah, we spend so much time diving into things that don't matter a lot. Like you watch a movie and you're like, oh, I wonder what other movies this actor's been in. <laughs> and that's great. But you can do the same thing. There's so much data out there about real world things that actually make a difference. Yeah, go out there, find some cool answers and do some back of the napkin math and then put down in the comments below what you figured out so that we can start sharing it with other people because there's amazing things that we can figure out together. Thank you so much for watching. Now, now you know. know.